All right, I've got my cup of coffee here. I've been sipping on it. It's like that perfect temperature. Not too hot, not too cold, just just right. The Goldilocks amount of hot. That's nice. So I'm going to take a sip of that wonderful coffee, and then we're going to get started. as that introduction music fades out, I will say hello. My name is Neil Gorman, and you're listening to a podcast called Inform Seminar. On this podcast, what I'm going to try to do is talk about, do a deep dive into Lacan's Seminar 11, The Four Fundamental Concepts of Psychoanalysis. And on the previous episode, I talked about the first chapter of that seminar. I tried to extract a couple of ideas that I thought were really, really important, and then I commented on those ideas, offered my own ideas about those ideas, and uh, edited it, mixed it, put it up online. People have downloaded that and listened to it. Thanks for doing that if you're one of those folks. And thanks for downloading and listening to this one too. There's so many things you could be doing with your time, and the fact that you're downloading and listening to this podcast is nice. I appreciate it. Anyways, people have downloaded and listened to episode three, the one before this one, and I got two questions from listeners, and I thought, hey, these are cool questions. And in addition to responding to the individual listeners who sent them an email, I thought I would record a probably fairly short podcast as a bit of an addendum to the things that I brought up in episode number three. So hopefully this will be interesting to you. So in episode three, the the stuff that I kind of tried to highlight were uh, the fundamentals of psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis as a praxis, the differences between training as a psychoanalyst versus psychoanalytic formation, and then psychoanalysis as a clinical practice. And the first question that I got had to do with the distinction that I made between psychoanalytic training and psychoanalytic formation. So the listener who sent this in, kind of, I'm summarizing what they wrote here. They said that the way I talked about it, you know, I I said that psychoanalytic training is this very standardized kind of thing where people go through a set of, you know, classes and procedures for a certain amount of time, so on and so forth. And then at the end of that, they can qualify as a psychoanalyst. And I compared that to psychoanalytic formation, which is this totally unique kind of thing that happens in the Lacanian world that has, does not have standards. It's not like you have to take these classes in this order. It's not like you have to be in some kind of didactic or training analysis for a certain amount of time. It's not like you have to have a certain number of cases supervised, so on and so forth. And the listener said that based on my description, the thing that I was really harping on is the fact that psychoanalytic formation is this truly like highly idiosyncratic, totally unique experience of one person and that that can't be replicated. And I was suggesting that training is this thing that is the same for everybody. So the listener pointed out that even though psychoanalytic training at a formal institute does have a kind of predetermined order, a set of operations, so on and so forth, every single person who goes through that training does have a unique experience of that training. And so I think that the listener's comment was that 
maybe there's not so much of a difference between what I was calling psychoanalytic training and psychoanalytic formation. That maybe training is a, there is a standardized thing that happens in training, but there's always a subjective, unique experience of that standardized thing. So I would say that that's correct uh, to, to the listener who sent that in. You're totally correct. Uh, training is this thing that is kind of predetermined. It is the standardized set of experiences that people go through. But of course, everybody who goes through that training does have a totally unique experience of that training. So in that respect, I would say that training is actually the same as formation. But here's where I think they're different. I would say that in institutes and programs that emphasize training, what has happened is you have a, an institution, usually some kind of psychoanalytic institute, that is going to charge people money. And it, it, you know, so the people will pay for the, the classes and, and the analysis and the supervision and all that sort of stuff. And that will go through a certain period of time and there might be certain things that people need to do. Maybe they have to pass like qualifying exams or, or something like that. Maybe they have to be in an analysis for a certain length of time. Maybe they need to have a certain number of cases supervised, so on and so forth. And then at the end of that, what tends to happen is that people can uh, qualify. And what, what qualify, I think, means is be recognized as a psychoanalyst by the institution through which they have done all of these various training exercises. And I think that there's a problem with this, and this is me being partisan, very Lacanian when I say this. I think that there's a problem with that because what ends up happening is these, these institutes end up kind of buying into a uh, capitalism is what I'm trying to get at here. I was trying to think of a nicer way to say it and I can't think of a nicer way they take the psychoanalytic experience and they turn it into this thing that in a way I think is like bought and sold as a commodity. And I think that there's a problem in that. And this is not the same thing that happens in formation. Uh, now in, in a psychoanalytic formation, uh, analysis and will actually pay an analyst for their analysis. And if you do supervision, you're probably going to pay for that too. But I think that that is actually different than paying an institution because once you pay an institution, I think that, that the institution sees you kind of as a customer. And when you're seen as a customer, I think that fundamentally shifts the kind of relationship that an analysand has with the institution. Now in the Lacanian world, there are not formal institutes. There are schools, and this is something that I'll talk about probably in a future episode to a greater degree, but a psychoanalytic school is something that is not the same thing as a psychoanalytic training institute. The school is something that people join. And the reason that they join the school in the Lacanian world is because they want to be around other people who are very interested in psychoanalysis. They have a desire to be in a psychoanalytic community. And the school is actually the community. Uh, there's people who've talked about this a lot better than I'm doing here. But I'm going to try to make a comparison here. If you take a look at the schools of philosophy that existed in ancient Greece, so you had Plato, and Plato had the academy, and then you had Aristotle, and Aristotle formed the Lyceum, and there was Epictetus who had the garden, and so on and so forth. Those were philosophical schools, and students would go to those schools to learn philosophy, and when they went there, they would join the school, which means they would take part in the life of the school. They would, you know, 
go there, sometimes live there, do the the cooking, the cleaning, the the maintenance, so on and so forth. And, and that was what being a student was. And people could kind of come and go as they needed to or as they desired to. There was a kind of informality to it. There wasn't a curriculum. There wasn't an accreditation. There was just uh, this this person who had set up a school and there were other people who taught at that school. And based on the the way that people perceived the school, that's what gave it its ability to recruit new students, right? But they, they didn't get, the school didn't get any kind of formal recognition from something like an accreditation body. This is different than psychoanalytic institutes. Psychoanalytic institutes do get accredited by the International Psychoanalytic Association. So there's this you know, larger group that basically says this is an institute that meets the standards for training. We, you know, bless it and say, yes, it can go ahead and do that. You don't have something like that in the, the Lacanian world. The Lacanian world, I think, is much more predicated. The, the formation of a psychoanalyst in the Lacanian world, as opposed to the training of an analyst in the IPA world. In the Lacanian world, I think the formation is much more predicated on an individual analysis desire to have some kind of a psychoanalytic experience for themselves. And the school does not attempt to make that experience into any specific thing. It recognizes that every single person is going to kind of engage in a formation that is going to be different than everybody else. And I, I just think that this is very different than the training experience. Uh, again, I do recognize totally that everybody has a totally unique experience of psychoanalytic training and everybody has a totally unique experience of psychoanalytic formation. That's the same. But I do think that the formation side of things is far less controlled, uh, far less prescribed than the training side. And I also think that the formation side is actually less, I'm going to go so far as to use the word corrupted, by the kind of uh, consumerism that is in so many things in the world. So that's my my thoughts on that. And I'm, I don't have any notes in front of me as I'm saying this. I'm just kind of riffing based off of the question that I got in an email. Uh, the last thing that I'll say about this, which I, I hope is interesting to people listening to this, is on the different way that authorization functions in these two things. In psychoanalytic training, what I think happens is people go to an institute and they have a transference to the institute. And that transference kind of means that the person believes that the institute can authorize them to practice as a psychoanalyst. The same thing might happen if people go through a psychoanalytic formation. They may present to a specific psychoanalyst and, and say, I want to be a psychoanalyst one day. And they might think that the analyst they're going to might one day authorize them and say, you know what, you, you can go ahead and be an analyst now. But the real difference here, I think, is that in the Lacanian world, one of the things which is very, very important is that an individual person who desires to become a psychoanalyst, first they have to have the desire. Secondly, at a certain point, they need to authorize themselves. They need to say, I'm going to start practicing as an analyst. And then they will do different things within the psychoanalytic community, within the Lacanian community. They'll present cases at conferences. They'll engage in cartels. They'll do different things. And through doing that, the community will then sort of validate their authorization. That's the way that that will work. Where I think in the training 
style. What happens here is there, the idea of self-authorization is just actually not that important at all. I think I have not gone through an IPA training, so I can't say that for sure, but that's something that I think is actually a key difference between these two. And to me, that strikes me as a very important difference. Okay. So that was the first question I got. The second question I got had to do with something that I brought up when I talked about psychoanalytic praxis in the previous episode. So I had read this quote from the text and I said that there was a lot going on in this quote and I only touched on a couple of the things that I thought were going on in it. And somebody asked me if I would do kind of like a deeper dive on this quote and maybe say a little bit more about it. And I thought, sure, I'll give that a try. The quote came from page six of the text and it said, what is a praxis? It is in the broadest terms to designate a concerted human action, whatever it may be, which places a psychoanalyst in the position to treat the real by the symbolic. The fact that in doing so, the analyst encounters the imaginary to a greater or lesser degree is only of secondary importance here. So let's do a little bit of a deeper dive here on this. In this section, Lacan is really kind of grappling with the question, what is a psychoanalytic praxis? Praxis being the combination of theoretical knowledge and ideas and concepts and the actual actions, the practical things that a person says and does in the real world. Those two things come together, that's a praxis. So Lacan says in the broadest terms, it's a human action. What he's talking about here, I think, is that psychoanalysis is not just a pure theory. Psychoanalysis as a clinical practice is something that involves a person doing psychoanalysis. It involves an analysand doing psychoanalysis and a psychoanalyst doing psychoanalysis. It's an action, or actually probably would be more appropriate to say actions, plural, in the world. So that's the first thing here. So what happens in this action? Well, he says that an analyst is somebody who treats the real by the symbolic. This is a very, very, very important idea to me. And it's also a very complicated idea. I'm going to try to tell you how I'm thinking about it right now today. And my thoughts on this have changed and they'll probably change again. So, you know, I reserve the right to change my mind later to treat the real by the symbolic. So what is the real? Well, that's a huge question. And there are so many different ways to answer that question. So many different things that people have done in an attempt to try to to talk about it, write about it, think about it, so on and so forth. And it's a really hard thing to do because it it just depends on, you know, which part of Lacan you're referencing. If you're referencing kind of his earlier work, the real has a certain kind of resonance. If you're referencing the stuff he did kind of in the middle, it has yet a different resonance. And if you're talking about the last stuff that Lacan did from the 70s on, it has an even different resonance. Whenever we talk about the real, it's just kind of hard because Lacan wasn't consistent in the way that he thought about, talked about, wrote about the real. But here's kind of how I think about the real right now. The real is something that is outside of the imaginary register, the imaginary register being things that we can represent, things that we can kind of understand through images. And it's also outside of the symbolic, meaning language, the things that we can kind of represent and understand through the use of speaking words or writing words. The real is outside of both of those things. So it's this, you could say it's something that cannot be grasped nor understood, at least not completely, by language nor by images. It's something that uh, 
is unrepresentable. You might almost think of it as a, a singularity of, of a black hole. We don't really, from what I understand, I'm not a physicist here, but I've talked to people who know a lot more about physics than I do. Black holes are really interesting to physicists because they suck things into them. And according, I think, to the way that we understand the way that everything in the universe works, energy and stuff cannot be created or destroyed. But when stuff gets sucked into a black hole, physicists like don't know what happens to it. It seems like in the singularity of a black hole, the rules that we have become accustomed to and that we sort of view everything through don't really apply. And so they're this thing that is clearly there. The singularity of a black hole is there, but it's not something that physicists or other scientists or, you know, people like me, dumb people like me uh, can understand. It is there, but we, if somebody were to say, explain what goes on in that, it would be like, uh, we don't know how to do that. So maybe that's one way that you could kind of start to think about the real. That was a very abstract example. Let me bring it into something which I hope will be a little bit more practical. In our lives, there are things that are real. Thing, And the real doesn't make sense. A lot of things in our life do make sense. We can talk about it. We can engage with different things and make things in our life make sense by writing or speaking. That would be using the symbolic to make things make sense. So for example, I could tell you about the breakfast I had and I could make you understand what I had for breakfast. I'm not going to do that because that'd be very boring. That would be me using the symbolic to help you understand this experience that I'd had earlier in the day today. Uh, I could also draw a picture, you know, or paint a picture of the breakfast that I had and show you that. And that might also give you some understanding of what it was that I ate for breakfast. I could combine those. I could draw a picture and then tell you about the picture. So that'd be a combination of the imaginary and the symbolic to tell you what I had for breakfast. And you could understand that probably without expending too much energy. But there's other things in our lives that are really kind of complicated and they're, and we can't explain them to ourselves or to other people, at least not easily. We struggle to explain them. One of the things that we struggle to explain is jouissance. Uh, a very, very important concept in Lacanian psychoanalysis. Jouissance being sometimes translated as just enjoyment, but there's so much more to it than that. It is a, a specific kind of enjoyment. It is a enjoyment which is very singular to us. It is, it is the way that we enjoy things that don't make sense exactly, but we, we can't help ourselves. We enjoy them anyways. Uh, so this is the real. So everybody has this. Another, another way I could talk about the real, I suppose, that might make it more kind of uh, practical for people listening to this is you might say that trauma, real trauma that people go through is real. And if you've ever been through a trauma or talked to somebody who's been through a trauma, one of the things that you might notice is that people oftentimes struggle to explain what happened in the trauma and why it was traumatic. It's something they, they might really try very hard. I've witnessed people attempting to explain awful things that have happened to them and they find that they can't put the trauma into words nor can they like put it into musical notes nor can they put it into a drawing they they try i think a lot of all all of those things because what they're trying to do is to kind of metabolize the traumatic incident to make it make sense to them and they can't but even though we can't do this, uh, we can't completely and totally make sense of the real by talking and, and whatnot. What Lacan says here in this idea is that psychoanalysis is to treat the real by the symbolic. I think that 
one of the things that people can do when they've gone through a trauma or when they're trying to explain why it is that they're getting the satisfaction they're getting from this thing, which is also kind of potentially wrecking their life, they can talk about it to a degree. And through talking about things to somebody, a psychoanalyst, somebody who is able to listen to you talk about the trauma that you've gone through, talk about your mode of jouissance, talk about whatever, in the kind of unique and specific way that that psychoanalyst listens to you, they will occasionally say things back. And what you find is that by sometimes saying things to a person, by putting something into words, you can't necessarily grasp the real. You can't totally explain away the trauma. But what you sometimes can do is through talking about it, change the way that the person ends up relating to the real. Change the way that they relate to the traumatic incident. Change the way that they relate to their jouissance. And this is all done through talking. So I want to try to give you an example of this. There's an American poet named Mary Oliver. She died somewhat recently. She's my favorite American poet. She's one of my favorite poets, period, but she's definitely my favorite American poet. And she wrote uh, a poem that I can recite from memory because it's very short. Somebody I loved once gave me a box of darkness. It took me years to realize that this too was a gift. I think that that is something that if you hear that and it makes sense to you, that can have an effect. Now, somebody might hear that and that might not make any sense to them at all. But there are other people listening to this who might hear that and go, oh yeah, yeah, that, that makes some sense. I get that. That would be using the symbolic to get at the real in a way. Not totally explain the real, not make the real make complete sense to you, but it changes the way that you think about it. You don't, You still don't understand it, but you think about it differently. And I think that that's what Lacan is getting at here when he says that psych, a psychoanalytic praxis is this practical thing where, you know, an analysis comes and they talk and talk and talk and talk. That's using the symbolic and the analyst listens to them do that. And then occasionally the analyst says something back. And it, when this works out well, that back and forth through the symbolic will have an effect on the way that the analysis experiences the real. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. I don't know if it does, but I really hope that it does. So the last sentence in this was the fact that in doing this, this treating the real by the symbolic, uh, an analyst will encounter the imaginary is to a greater or lesser degree only of secondary importance here. Uh, this sentence, I'm not sure if I know what this means, but here's what I think it means. I think that what Lacan is talking about here is that the imaginary can also be thought of as identity. And a lot of other, I think, forms of psychotherapy actually are very focused on this. They're very focused on helping people kind of like construct uh, or repair or maintain some kind of an identity. Uh, that would be working on some kind of imaginary identification that might have some sort of usefulness, some sort of utility for a patient. And Lacan found that when people come and they they talked to him, and I think any psychoanalyst will find when people come and talk to them, people talk about their imaginary identifications. That is inevitable, that they will tell you, I am a father, or I am a mother, I am a teacher, I am a, a Uber driver, I am retired, I am divorced. The, they'll give you all these different things, and you'll find that, that some of the sorts of descriptions they have of themselves are more important than others. Though the people will lay out for you, whether they want to or not, an imaginary identity, something that they identify with, something they identify as. 
And Lacan would say that that imaginary identity is a, is a fiction. It is a version of a person that perhaps they might kind of want to be, but probably are not because the imaginary identity is more whole and more complete than the actual subject, the real person actually is, and so on and so forth. So yeah, the imaginary is going to be there in the treatment, but it's actually of a secondary importance to the treatment of the real by the symbolic. So that was my longer attempt to riff on this. Again, I might listen to this at some point in the future and hear my words and think, oh my gosh, I had that totally wrong. I can't believe that I thought that. That has happened to me before many times and it might happen again. But that's my understanding of it right now. And I think that's all I got for you this time. So this has been a super informal, but hopefully informative episode of Inform Seminar. My name is Neil Gorman. I want to say thank you again for taking the time to download this, taking the time to listen to this. And uh, if you, whoever you are, have any kinds of questions that you would like to ask about this, you can find out more about this podcast and me and other things I have going on. You can find out how to contact me by going to a specific website, where, which is the website that has kind of all the different things I do on it. It's called surplusjuissance.com. I will spell that for people. S-U-R-P-L-U-S-J-O-U-I-S-S-A-N-C-E.com. Surplusjuissance.com. You go there. You can, like I said, find out all the stuff that uh, you might want to know about me and the stuff I'm doing. Thanks. Take care. Make glorious mistakes. Don't let the man keep you down. Damn the demand. Save the desire. So on and so forth. I'll stop talking now. <laughs>